1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Mark Duda is the CEO of Responsive Management, a survey company based out of Virginia. Mark Duda and his team have performed thousands of surveys over the last 30 years as it relates to wildlife, hunter attitude, general population responses to hunters, trophy hunting, meat hunting, you name it. Mark Duda and his team have been at the forefront of those kinds of questions and the answers to them. I wanted to have Mark on specifically because I'd seen an email about the Pennsylvania Game and Fish Commission and a survey that they put to the general population. There were some fantastic responses and answers to some very, very basic questions. I hope you'll enjoy this podcast as much as I did because Mark is just an incredible wealth of knowledge. He knows his stuff. He's been in the game for a long time. And we start very broadly and get very specific, but I know this is not the last time that I'll have Mark on, and you'll be seeing a lot of data and infographics coming through Blood Origins as a result of Mark's research. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins, and that reason is simple, is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Video, so I went and took a shower. Uh, you yeah. got out of your deer hunting clothes. Duck. Oh, duck hunting. Okay. Yeah, I have a house over on Chincoteague Island that I um, have a blind at, so yeah. Do any good this morning? No. Last week, I was down in the Currituck Sound in North Carolina, and it was amazing. It was We limited out every day. It was, it was great. So I was duck hunting um, last week. What is today? Today's like Thursday? Shut. Yeah. Um. So it was like a week ago, we started out the week down in the Currituck Sound and then North Carolina, and then moved over to 
the northern part of North Carolina and did some deer hunting, but didn't have any luck there. Um, I haven't had much luck deer hunting this year. I've had really good ducks, but nothing deer yet. So, mm. What was it flying what down is. in North Carolina right now? Is everything migrating already? Uh, there was woodies and there were teal. Um, there are, in Chicoteague, there's some canvas backs, but it's, it's, it's better down in North Carolina for whatever reason right now. Right. Right. So, well, you just need to, if you would, after this email, after this podcast, would you email me how like work life balance happens since you seem to be hu appropriately inserting hunting into your work life balance? You want me to tell you the secret? The secret's pretty easy. I have um, about a hundred really good employees, <laughs> and I love to do what I do. But I've been doing it for you know forty years, so I've built a company that I've got amazing people. They've been with me for twenty five plus years. So um, I love I love to do work, but I also love to be outside. So I, I try to balance, and I balance it a little bit better now in the past five or ten years than hey. in the first twenty or so years. But, yeah. So yeah, yeah, we're still small. Obviously, we've only been around. We've well, we've been around as a brand for five years, six years now. We've been around as a nonprofit for three. And that's so, great. I, yeah, no, I love it. I love what I do. And people are like, "You're getting old. Are you going to retire?" It's like, well, I I really love what I do. I, yeah. I love what I do. Um, I love the people. I love my clients. Um, so there's still more to do. Well, Mark Duda, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. I do not believe that this will be the only time we speak to you, with you. I think that there is a long opportunity here. We have a very diverse audience. We have a very global audience. And um, the stuff that you do is of interest to everyone, really. And so I can, you know, all I can offer you is a much louder platform to throw your voice onto and uh, disseminate the stuff that you're finding. Thank you. Good. We, we do a lot of work on a lot of different topics. We do probably 40 to 50 major studies a year in terms of how people relate to wildlife, conservation, the environment on a variety of subjects. So um, got lots of good stuff. So maybe we can get into some of that. No, for sure. Well, East Mark, Pennsylvania study is a platform to kind of go out from. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mark, for those who don't know who you are, introduce yourself, what you do. Sure. Um, my name is Mark Damien Duda. I'm the executive director of Responsive Management. Responsive Management is a survey research firm that specializes in natural resource and outdoor recreation issues. So we've been doing this now for 35 years. Um, so I've been in the conservation field for about 40 years. But what we do is we work at the intersection of the social sciences and, and wildlife and conservation. So um, Aldo Leopold once said that the problem of wildlife management is not how we should handle the deer. The real problem is one of human management. Wildlife management is comparatively easy. Human management is difficult. And especially and so, in today's social media world. Yeah. Well, he said that. He said that 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. So my background is, is I'm a certified wildlife biologist, and I started out as a wildlife biologist. And also um, a social scientist. So um, worked with a, a guy named Steve Keller um, at Yale University for my graduate work, who's sort of considered the, the, the father of this human dimensions field. So I, I was really lucky. He passed away a few years ago, and it was a, a real tragedy. But he left behind 
a lot of a lot of people. You know, I when he passed away, I, I wrote a couple articles about him, and but I and and I felt very special in terms of the amount of um, attention that he gave me through my career. You know, I, hey. I worked with him forty years ago, and as we started to develop a lot of these um, um, celebrations of his life, all of a sudden I was like, you know, you just talked to about a hundred and fifty other people who. Who felt the exact same way? So he had a, an incredible influence on a lot of people. So isn't that how you would hope that you know you or I would go out also one day? Yeah, yeah. Know? I wish, I wish. He had a lot of students. He he was a real professor. He really cared about his students, and so I'm I'm really honored to sort of kind of carry out a lot of what he did. He helped me start my business and on the board of directors for a while, and I knew him all the way through. I went he, I went on his first caribou hunt with him. He was more definitely more of a professor, you know, sort of more adult onset hunter. Mm-hmm. And so he, through his research, realized, as everybody does once you start learning about it, how important hunting is to civilization. I mean, you know, a man has been, women, humankind, have been hunting about 99.5% of our existence. It's only been the past hundred years that we've really moved away from hunting. And so, you know, people who are interested in wildlife and conservation and understanding how we came to where we are quickly come to understand how important hunting is as part of that social growth that we've had over the years. Mark, you've been in the game for, you've been in the, in the survey responsive management study game for 30 years. Maybe as a foundational question to start with before we dive into specifics. How has the impetus of social science changed over 30 years? The impetus being how has society changed or how has social media changed? Or... How, how uh, maybe the impetus of the, um, the role, maybe, of social science? Oh, great question. Yeah. Oh, it's increased dramatically. It's increased dramatically. Um, after I got out of graduate school, I worked. Um, my first job was with the Florida, at the time it was called the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. They're now the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Um, I'm honored because I still work, I still do work for them. You know, I just, and, and two days ago, I presented a study that we did on the participation and economics of hunting, fishing, and wildlife viewing in Florida. So got a really long history with them. It's an amazing organization. So they hired me as a, as a wildlife biologist. They knew I had this social science background too, but, you know, and, and the people who hired me understood the importance of it. But um, a lot of people were very skeptical. You know, it was like, we work for wildlife. We don't care about people. What, what do people right. have to do with anything? Right. And um, formally, the profession is called, you know, people refer to it as the human dimensions of wildlife. And one of the, the jokes that I used to hear down there was, well, human dimensions is that is that your waist size? Is that, is that the size of your belt? <laughs> and so, but it was interesting because as was, we went along and people all of a sudden were like, you know, this, this stuff could be important. You know, they were at the time they were reintroducing Florida panthers, Felis concolor corii up into North Florida and it wasn't working too good. And they brought us in and they said, well, you know, let's figure out why. And so all of a sudden we started to do more and incorporate more social science into a lot of the things that they did. And, and people quickly gained um, a pretty good understanding of how important it is. Now, again, you know, wildlife and environmental conservation, especially wildlife, we, we look at three things. We look at wildlife populations, we look at habitat, and we look at people. And, and good wildlife managers, good wildlife commissions, and just 
people in general know that you have to take all three of those into account. Yeah. You don't just do habitat. You don't just do populations. You don't just do people. I do only a, a part of that, but it's an important part of the equation. But I will tell you, over the years, we've gotten pretty good at wildlife. We know we know how to manage wildlife. Right. You know, we brought back the wood duck. We brought back the pronghorn. We brought back the bald eagle. We brought back the turkey. I mean, what an incredible success story. So we're we're darn good at that. But when it comes to people, you know, that they're not as easy to manage. <laughs> so um, so you know, I, again, I'm only one of lots of people who do this, but I I love that intersection between both. The, the, the resource itself and people. And, and at this point, you have to do both. Let me ask this. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll couch the question a little bit more simply. Are, are people's thoughts and feelings and emotions more important today than they were 20 years ago in wildlife management? Wildlife management has always been based on human values. Sort of, I mean, you know, where we... Where we are now is this incredible journey from where we started. Um, you know, when America was first founded, I mean, the amount of wildlife here was stunning to mm -hmm. the Europeans who came here. Um, it looked as though it was, uh, it was an infinite resource. We soon found out through the exploitation of wildlife and market hunting, and, mar and I really want to emphasize market hunting, because a lot of people now still conflate market hunting with hunting in general. But with market hunting, we saw incredible declines up until around 1900, where things were in really bad shape. And so human values absolutely played an important point to that point because people realized, wow, this, this is not good. Where yeah. we used to have bison, where we used to have deer, we used to have turkey, they're not around anymore. And so this whole field of wildlife management arose, you know, sort of the late 1800s, early 1900s, when state fish and wildlife agencies became um, sort of formed when early um, wildlife laws and enforcement came into being. And then, you know, in the 1930s, when it was in 1932, I don't have notes, you know, 1932, we had the duck stamp, mm -hmm. which raised up to this point over a billion dollars for wetland management. And then, of course, the Big Bang, which was the federal aid and wildlife, federal aid and sport fish and wildlife restoration, which was 1937, the Pittman-Robertson Act, yep. which finally started to put money into conservation. And then once we had money, once the profession had money, we, wow, we did some amazing things. I mean, we brought back all of those species on the brink of extinction that a lot of people at the time thought would, would never be around again. So it's been pretty amazing. And then, you know, through the 30s and 40s and 50s, we were still concentrated on the resource and, and rightfully so. But then in the 60s and 70s, a lot of, of great academics started to say, you know, we also need to incorporate people's values. And sort of that whole human dimensions field has arisen. So um, it's a hard question to answer. Your original question on have values changed and stuff or their attitudes change. But values have always been a, a part of that so-called North American model of wildlife conservation. But it's but it's has interjected itself in in different ways. Yeah, and new but, values have come to the table essentially yeah, versus yeah. It before being very hunter wildlife based kind of values. Now it's more you know, I, I don't even know how to couch the values. Um, yeah, it's one it's that true. doesn't quite understand resource utilization, but rather, hey, we like animals being around for them being around as a vet. 
Absolutely. And you're, you're making another good point. So yeah, so so the wildlife profession grew up around hunting and then ultimately fishing because our original um, funding source was that federal aid and wildlife restoration, the Pittman-Robertson Act in 1937. Um, it brings in, it brings in a, you know, a billion and a half dollars a year to state fish and wildlife agencies. <laughs> and then in the 50s, we had um, you know, a similar act for fisheries and fisheries have also had some pretty major successes. So, um, so anyway, so we have come from a more utilitarian background, the use of animals. In 1937, when the federal aid, the Pittman-Robertson Act was founded, um, it, was, it was founded, the, the funding mechanism was based on a tax, at the time an 11% surtax, on long arms. So who was paying for that? Well, hunters were. And so when hunters were paying the money and the game species were at most at the time, most at least in the visual, in the in the most obvious sense, the ones that were really taking the hit because of this market hunting. Market hunting wasn't taking warblers. Market hunting was taking ducks and right. deer and turkey. And so all that effort through those times focused in on those game species. So now and through what we call modernization, through urbanization, people's values have been changing. And we've moved somewhat away from a utilitarian value to a more, um, it still exists, but also to what um, researchers call a mutualistic value, and that is is more coexistence. And so uh, we really are at an interesting time with fish and wildlife management, because in some ways the, the, the profession is growing and is trying to grow through, you know, other acts to get money for wildlife, but we haven't been as successful on that. We've tried through something in the early 2000s called the Conservation and Reinvestment Act, if you're familiar uh -huh. with that, Kara, uh -huh. that didn't work. We had some, got some money from it. But then also, most recently, something called the Restoring America's Wildlife Act to get that money for so-called non-game, but non-game right. system, 90%, you 95% know, plus of species. Yep. So what's interesting is people always say, well, wildlife agencies are trying to focus and only focus on hunting and fishing. Well, it's actually the hunters and the anglers in those state agencies who are the most vocal and are taking the most lead to manage all of wildlife. You know, when my background came, even though I've done tons of work in hunting and wrote books on hunting and, and fishing and policy, you know, my background is in non-game and wildlife viewing. Yeah. So, um, so the profession is trying to move in, in, in trying to move toward a very comprehensive management system of wildlife but it's that money is everything you know we and we're still trying to get those funds to do that there's some good programs some good non-game wildlife programs but they're woefully underfunded mark do you what is your opinion on how social media has interacted in the change of values around wildlife management because it's been an, a staggering exponential, and we're still on the exponential rise when you look at the data of social media's influence in our world. Yeah, it's a good question. I think what it's done is, 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 is it has accelerated what was already happening. You know, people were moving more away from utilitarian values and more toward a more of what we call a mutualistic attitude and value. Um, and so I think it's played a role in some positive ways. I mean, I mean, the big, the big change in how people view wildlife is urbanization. 
you know, if you are if you are a farmer um, in Kansas or even here where I am in Virginia and Southwest Virginia or whatever, I mean, your view of wildlife is very different. You interact with wildlife every day. You see the good. You see some of the nuisance issues and stuff like that. So you sort of interact with wildlife in a very different way, and in, in, I would say a very real world way. Mm-hmm. With the rise of not just social media, but movies. I mean, think about Bambi. That's that's not social media, but it had a huge impact on how people saw hunting, and in, in a not in a positive way. And so I would say social media accelerated what was already happening with people being more removed from wildlife. People who are removed from wildlife, how do they interact with wildlife? They interact with wildlife through television, right? Through um, books or magazines or paintings on the wall. I love. I collect wildlife art. But that's not real wildlife. And so those values are a little bit more removed from the real world perspective of wildlife. So social media just sort of accelerated that, in my opinion, in terms of, of, of intensifying how people see things. Um, where social media has really impacted conservation, in my opinion, especially hunting, has been with people posting um things that probably aren't appropriate to be posting when it comes to hunting. Um, I, I wrote a book a, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago. Um, it was funded by the um, Hunters Leadership Forum. And, yeah, NRA. Yeah, it's a great little book. You know, the yep, called How to Talk About Hunting. Yep. I don't know if you have that. But um, one of the things we talk about is the whole idea of what we call a um, sort of an animal rights aspect, an animal welfare aspect, and then a dominionistic aspect. And so it's a continuum. And, and it's really important to understand. We have animal rights. That is the no use of animals, period. You're not allowed to eat meat. You're not allowed to do anything. You know, and, and I study values, and, and I, I understand it. I get it. People don't want to do that. That's an animal rights attitude. Um, there's an animal welfare perspective, which is that big middle that says um, you can utilize animals but you can't abuse animals, and it has to be done in, in ways that decrease the amount of pain to that animal. So you can utilize animals, but you can't abuse animals. <laughs> and then on the other side, you've got what we call a dominionistic attitude. And that is, is we can use animals regardless of their welfare. Well, what would the average person say is the percentages of each? Well, you've got about I don't know, seven, well, I do know, seven or eight percent of people who hold an animal rights attitude. Only about four percent live by an animal rights attitude. You've got about 80, 85 percent of the American public that says, I support animal welfare. We can use animals without causing undue undue pain or suffering. Then you have a dominionistic attitude, which is about four percent of the population says, I don't care. Just, Just use them, kill them. I don't care. So, okay, so given that background, where do we fall as a wildlife profession in terms of, of, of how animals should be treated, the so animal welfare perspective? And so yet when people, po- and so that's where people support things and don't support things. In everything you do when you think about hunting or things like that with the use of animals, you need to look through that lens. So when somebody posts a picture of a bloody animal, when somebody posts a picture of them posing or on, you know, like, <laughs> when you see me like this, you know, <laughs> over an animal, 
what is that doing? That is that is expressing a dominionistic attitude, which the bulk of Americans find repulsive. If you talk about kill them and grill them, if it's down, it's brown. Kill the son of a bitches. I mean, that shows zero respect for wildlife, which goes against you know my personal values, but also the, the large majority of Americans' values. So if you want to increase the amount of anti-hunting out there, go ahead and post those, those species. You're, you're an anti-hunter's best friend. Mark, do you so think that's that... That's a long-winded answer to your question about how social sure, media sure. has changed. So. Do you think that hunters have not changed with the advent of social media in terms of how they communicate? I think, I think a majority of them have, and I think a majority... Well, I mean, first off, first off a majority of hunters are ethical... Um, people, you know, we see that, the, and 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 that's why we call it hunting versus poaching. And again, all of our studies on po- we just finished a really cool study on poaching in Oregon. Um, but yeah, po- I saw that poaching, today. I got that email that? today. Yeah, poaching poaching is not hunting, and hunting is not poaching. So, so the first thing I want to say, I don't is know if you've I'm- heard this, Mark. This, and you can put this in your repertoire because I know you love little tidbits for your for your speeches. <laughs> The best thing I've heard, Amy Dickman out of Oxford uses this. She goes, uh, calling hunting poaching is like calling shopping and shoplifting the same thing. I love it. It's stored in my brain. There we I go. I love it. I love it. She's great. So, yeah. So, um, um, so you know, our studies in terms of poaching, 99% of hunters do things legally and ethically. The problem is, is when you hear about that small percentage it's echoed throughout. It's, mm-hmm. it's in a lot of ways. It's sort of no different than, um, you know, I before COVID, I used to fly a lot. You know, I used to, I have three million miles with Delta. I I fly all I used to fly all the time. So it, so some people are like, oh, I'm afraid of flying. It's like, well, no, you're really safe. But there's you know six seven thousand planes in the air right now, and there have been every day for years and years and years. One plane crashes, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, all the planes are crashing. So when you see that with poaching or you hear so many stories of, of bad things happening, that's what people hear. And, and, you know, and again, we hunters are, are a little bit of a disadvantage because I can watch a football game with 100,000 of my closest friends in a stadium and I can see what's happening. And then millions of people see that football game. When you hunt, you're off in the woods by yourself and people don't see how hunters act and yeah. how they are epic. They don't see um, somebody shooting a bird from a blind and having that bird fly into a marsh and seeing the guide and his dog hunt for that duck to take it so there's no waste for an hour and a half. So, um, yeah. And, and the other thing is I don't think we're good enough. Then that was what that book was about, how to talk about hunting, is terms of using the right words and the right phrases to, to talk about hunting. So, um, so there's a lot that we can still learn. But again, your original question there was, have um, hunters changed in terms of media? Um, I think media is good if we do a good job. Programs like yours, where you're bringing out the message in terms of, of wildlife and conservation, and um, the few that are posting things that just shouldn't shouldn't be posted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I'm of the opinion of you know before so- the advent of social media, the only way that hunters communicated with each other was the grip and grin. That's what you posted. You might have you might have sent an odd sunset picture. You might have said an odd like here's a beer, cheers kind of picture to each other. But 
back in the day, it was, you know, sending photos of the, the animal that you shot. And I think that's still very prevalent today in terms of our communication style in social media. And I think that you're right. I think a lot of people have adopted and changed to say, well, here's the trophy shot, but there's also the sunset shot. Here's the burger that I ate from the animal. Here's the eight or nine, 10 things that come with this entire concept of hunting. It's just not this trophy shot, but you still have the trophy shot without context, which is a, a, typically a white guy smiling over a dead animal. And everyone's like, well, why are you smiling? Why you enjoyed killing that animal? And it's like, well, damn, how do you communicate that the smile is not the enjoyment of killing something? Because you're purporting to love it at the same time, right? Exactly. I mean, you're exactly, exactly. And, and that it's, and it's so interesting too, because, because you're right. It's like you take, you're sitting in a blind, whether it's a duck blind or a tree stand and you're you've sat there for hours and nothing's there. So you're, taking selfies of yourself to send your wife, you know, I haven't seen anything yet. And, um, you know, you don't post those kinds of, who posts that? Who wants to see you in a orange cap? You know? <laughs> um, and then people do. So it is, it's a li- it is a little bit of a conundrum in terms of, um, of what people post and that type of stuff. But I, again, I do think that we're getting better as a profession to show people all of the amazing things. I mean, cause you're right. I mean, you know, here's my here's my cell phone. I don't know if you can see it. It's it's a it's it's mm-hmm. a picture of my duck blind at Chincoteague that I sit out on, and it's a it's a sunrise, and it's absolutely beautiful sunrise. And so it's those kinds of things to most hunters that are so important. And that we found that out with fishing. I mean, we do a lot of work. We do tons of work with fishing too. And in the old days, um, we a lot of the agencies were very oriented toward catch should we do bigger fish or more fish or what how should we manage and when we started doing the research and you start talking to anglers what do people talk about they talk about their memories of being with their mom and their dad they talk about clean water and how beautiful water is when it's really flat and there's no wind on it mm-hmm. when the sun comes up and that that is anybody going to argue that the most beautiful sunsets are over water i don't know you know so, um, so all of a sudden you're like, well, what about the fish, the big fish? It's like, well, yeah, that's important too. And of course it is. Of course, catching fish is important to fishing. But, you know, so maybe a silly and a, uh, an exaggerated analogy would be, well, let's, you and I are going to go fishing tomorrow. And I say, I, I got two places for you, Robbie. I've got um, a place where you're probably going to catch a couple of fish and it's beautiful. The water is clean. Um, it's, is you know, the, the shoreline is beautiful and we'll, we'll catch a couple of fish. I have another place and man, you're going to throw your rod in and you're going to catch five pound, 10 pound bass every cast. Oh wait, but it's kind of a big hole in the parking lot of a Walmart. Where do you want to go? So again, an exaggeration, but the point is, is that those, what we call naturalistic values are so incredibly important. And that's why people love to be outside, especially at this time of year. He doesn't want to be outside this time of year. Again, I'm a I'm a very avid birder. Um, I I you know I one my my other what's house, your bird list number? Uh, it's pretty big. What eight hundred? Not that much. Not we yet. Have two, we have um on Chincoteague Island. I I overlook a National Wildlife Refuge, 
and we've got over 300 species just okay. there at certain times of the year. I've seen probably 80 or 90 percent of them. So um, I don't I keep lists, but it's not just like with my hunting. I don't keep. Okay. I okay. I, I, I I just normal um, twitches are really adamant about their list. They are adamant about those lists, and I want to say that I'm not a list keeper. I took a turkey. I took a um. I finished my my um turkey grand slam this past year, and I um was down in Florida and to get my Osceola turkey, and um I was able to get it the first day. And I was with a guy who was really into it, and he came back, and, and I was like, ah, oh, this is great. I finally finished my Grand Slam. And he's like, this is a big bird. And he starts measuring this and measuring that. He goes, this, he looked it up a couple hours later. He goes, this is the third highest scoring bird ever to come out of Florida. And I was like, wow, <laughs> at least my friends aren't going to make fun of me. So honestly, if it weren't, if it, he didn't measure Doesn't everything matter. from beard and stuff, but, you know, I don't know, is my list... My list probably isn't eight hundred, but I bet it's I bet it's between six and seven hundred. Nice. I do a lot of traveling. I've been to Africa fifteen times, you know, in, in all of the great places from Costa Rica and oh, amazing, between. amazing. So I I love to bird. Mm -hmm. I love to bird. Um, am I? I'm somewhere between a bird watcher and a birder. Amazing. I mean, I've, written, I've written three books about wildlife watching. So Virginia, West Virginia, and one called Watching Wildlife. So I, I love it. But, but I also think it's interesting because very, very few bird, and you think about this a lot when you're in a duck stand, a duck, a, a, a blind, is that, and I tell my wife, I'm like, you got to come out with me because you see so much. And even hardcore birders are very um, hesitant to sit in a blind for seven or eight hours. You know, you're sitting there camoed up for seven or eight hours. And so the amount of stuff that you see during that time is pretty amazing. So I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but maybe I'm a birder who pretends to be a hunter because I just sit and watch where you have peregrine falcons come at you and, and everything else. So. Has your Anyways, wife taken you up on the invitation yet? We were, well, she was supposed to last year when I was going for my Miriam's turkey in um, New Mexico. And, and the plan was to get my couple of turkeys the first day or the second day, and she was going to come out with me the third day. Well, the Miriams was my last turkey on the Grand Slam. So guess what? First day, no turkeys. Second day, no turkeys. First morning of the third day, no turkeys. That final afternoon, I finally got my Miriam. So um, Amazing. So, yeah, so she didn't. But I think she's becoming more and more interested in coming out and, and seeing that bird come in and you know see it strut and stuff. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's nothing more amazing than that. Mike. No, no. Mark, I might you're... make you a little bit biased toward turkey. I love it. I love it all, but I don't turkey hunting. There's, oh, for sure, that's really special. It's a disease. We're all. I'm afflicted with the same disease you are. Mark, do you have in your research? Have you asked the question of hunters? Um, maybe almost like that ethical question, because I think one of the questions that is often often lobbied at hunters is that, oh, you guys are unethical. You guys are inhumane. Have you, in your number of surveys, you've done obviously lots and lots and lots. Has there been a question posed to the hunting community that is if all kind of scenarios, i.e. if you were, if you saw a big buck on the other side of the fence, would you poach it? I'm just making up something, an example here to say, how could we, has anybody done a true reflection on 
the percentage of ethics, and I put ethics in quotation marks because I know there's some people who listen to me and kick my ass all over the show about the word ethic. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Well, there's it's what a great discussion. Um, I would I would say it's complicated, and there's and there's a couple there's a couple of sort of things that we've seen over the years. The answer is yes, we have, but it's it's complicated. There, the the first thing I would say are is that. Hunters do differentiate between things that are more regulations for whatever reason and things that are more moral in in terms of what that means. Um, let's take Sunday hunting is, you know, that's sort of a man-made thing. And so, you know, shooting ducks on on the water. Um, there's, there's sort of things that, that I think that hunters differentiate between a regulation. Well, we can do it in that state over there. So why can't I do it in this one? Now, again, most hunters will abide by it, but they're like, I don't know if I get it. Is that really, is that really, am I being not ethical if I go Sunday hunting in this state versus state over there? Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just. You know what I'm saying? I, this, sure. this stuff that gets you in trouble. They're like, he said that. It's like, no, I didn't say that. But the point is that there's some things that are internal and some things that are external. Most hunters ethically internally say, I'm not wasting any of this. Very few hunters. I mean, I just did a study on this. 97, 98% of hunters eat everything that they kill. And so that's Wow, different. that's a statistic and a half right there. That's different than an angler, maybe, and I'm not doing hunters versus anglers, but it's an easy thing to say, hey, my slot limit on this is 20 inches. Oh, man, this is a 19-inch fish. Yeah, if I stretch it out, it's 19 and three quarters. If I really pull, it's 20 inches, and I'm going to keep it. So does, does, do you know what I'm saying? So on a big picture level, I think that um, there's differences in what ethics are, and I think that's why you get your ass kicked because, you know, you say that, and, and I am very hesitant about this as well because, because it becomes complicated. But again, with all of that said and all of the studies that we do, it's pretty clear that a strong majority of hunters are ethical and it's because of internal, an internal type of thing that they're motivated by. Now, again, are there some bad actors out there? Yes. But but it's 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 a lot farther and fewer between than you might think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've been with guides before, you know, maybe up in Canada where you've got ten guys who are hunting. You know, if you ever waterfowl hunted in in Saskatchewan or somewhere else, people are taking a lot of ducks, and you watch those guides, and it's like one, two, three. Okay, Mark's got his six. Okay, six, six. Stop, guys. We're five. You know, we're five under the limit now. When the next guys come. Two people are shooting. You're going to shoot a couple of birds, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I've had so much experience with so many guides in so many different places, and have observed that even in times when you wouldn't get caught, if that makes sense. Yep. Yep. I just don't. Sense. I just don't see that. Now, certainly, if you look at some history, I mean, some of the you know, I you know, when you look at some of the history in duck hunting or something else, 50, 60, 70 years ago. You know, there was enormous amounts of, of illegal take, if you will. But I, I don't see that anymore. I think that, that we've grown out of that. And I think most people understand that um, 
that ethics are an incredible part of what it is that we do, not just internally, but also from a public relations standpoint. Oh, yeah. No, Man, that's a... did I just tightrope that one. That, it's just Listen, complicated. You've been, Robbie, there for, just... You've, been, you've been in the game for 30 years. Your political speech is very, very good. But, but it's real, too. I just, you just, after, you know, after a while, if you say, people take stuff out of context. For sure, like, for sure. For so. sure. Well, look, let's, um, let's get into um, the Pennsylvania study that you just did, because that's what I reached out to you on. I saw the email. This is ridiculously cool. And then you responded back saying, well, Robbie, we have a lot of ridiculously cool stuff. Um, I said, I know. I do know that, Mark. Um, and there's a long road in front of us. So let's just talk about Pennsylvania. Uh, let's set the stage. You guys just did a survey in Pennsylvania. What did you survey specifically? We, this, this, the study that we're specifically talking about, we've done work for Pennsylvania Game Commission for 30 plus years. Um, great organization. Um, it's a hard job. I think one of the, if you, if you really wanted to talk about fun things, I think being a game manager or a director in Pennsylvania and a game manager or a director in Michigan might be two of the hardest jobs in the world because so many demands are put on them. Everybody wants a trophy buck and there's only a few trophy bucks to go around. So these are hard jobs. But anyways, um, so the Pennsylvania study was an interesting one because it was, it was, it was general population, and the title of it was called Pennsylvania Residents' Attitudes Toward Wildlife Management. Right. And we looked at a whole bunch of different things. We looked at one of the things we do is we look at monitoring public opinion on um, populations of species. You know, are the deer populations too high, too low, about right? Are bear populations? What do they think about Canada geese? Do they support or oppose hunting? Um, what do they think about the reintroduction of the American marten, formerly called the pine marten? Do they know about wildlife diseases? What do they think about the Pennsylvania Game Commission? Do they think they're doing a good job? And, and so the survey we, was to the general populace of Pennsylvania. It wasn't too hunter specific. Correct. This one was general population, although obviously when you do a general population study, you're picking up hunters. You're sure, picking sure. up licensed hunters. And so our, in this study, hunters were part of that to the tune of about 8 to 10% of the population. And that's what they are in reality. When you look at it out there, Pennsylvania is a huge hunting state. People who consider themselves hunters, people who did it in the past, it's about 10, 11% of the population. So um, hunters were a part of that. But this was a general population study. Different from other studies that we've done in Pennsylvania that are just hunters on right. hunting regulations and things like that. Right. Totally different study. This study is what we call it was a scientific study. Um, I'm going to bore you with some terms about probability-based populations. And there's a couple types of surveys that, you know, think about surveys. One survey you can just give to your buddies at your hunt club. Hey, hey. hey what do you guys think of this? Oh, 100% of them think that. I can go to a political rally whatever that is, I can go to candidate A. Wow, hey, do my survey, do my survey. Look at this, 100% of the people are going to vote for candidate A. We have no problems at all. I can run around my um, street and see a bunch of signs out for candidate B and say, candidate B is going to win next week because I see more signs on candidate B than candidate A. <laughs> Those are all non-probability observations and surveys, if you will. Right. Those are very different from a scientific probability-based survey that takes into account statistics. 
And so what we do is everything that we do is probability-based and scientific. Now, we talked about what I've done over the past 35 years. 95, 98% of my work has been with um, wildlife conservation environmental issues. But we do have contracts with universities to do data collection on political issues. So university, the Virginia system, Virginia Commonwealth University and stuff like that. Um, in the studies that we've done, when we apply what it is that we do, uh, we can pre predict elections within a percentage or two. I mean, in Virginia here, you know, we in 2020, um, you know, we we our numbers showed that Biden was going to win the state by about nine percent. He won by nine point five percent. Two, twenty to twenty, like a year later, twenty one, um, we had a Republican nominee, Glenn Youngkin, run. Yep. And you would think, okay, well, you know, Trump got beat by nine percentage points. Terry McAuliffe was the Democratic nominee for governor. He's going to win by nine percentage points. Surveys didn't show that at all. As you got closer and closer to that election, it was pretty clear through these scientific surveys of only about 800 people in a state with six million people, 800 people. We were predicting that within about two percentage points. And that's what the sampling error is on these. Lo and behold, Youngkin won. So what we call probability scientific surveys can really accurately predict what's going on with that, not that many people. Anyways, that's a background to say, yes, the study we did in Pennsylvania was a scientific probabil probability-based survey of Pennsylvania residents on wildlife issues. We talked to about 3,500 people. If I can predict, predict an election with 800 to 1,000 people, we're going to be able to tell you what people think and feel about wildlife yeah. issues. Now, what we did there, though, wasn't just 3,500 people. We did what's called a stratified sample. That is, as we looked at different um, units, we broke up the state into their 22 wildlife management units and surveyed in those. We oh, put it nice. together, of course. We um, you know, made sure that we weighted that data. We didn't just put it all sure, together. Sure. So very scientific, um, following textbook rules in terms of how to do things. So um, key results from the Pennsylvania study. So, okay, key results. Stop talking about methodology. So, <laughs> that was a result. very nice way to just be um, like, hey, Mark. <laughs> come on, let's talk about sampling or <laughs> um, but But anyway, so yeah, there's some, some really key results. Um, I, I would say a couple of them. Um, Pennsylvania residents, as we see across the United States, Pennsylvania residents care deeply about wildlife. They don't know a whole lot, but people like wildlife and everything I've ever done. I've never really seen a study. People don't like wildlife. You know, wildlife might cause nuisance issues or people are, might be afraid of certain things like grizzly bear reintroduction in certain places in the U.S. or something. But generally, people care about wildlife. Now, people will say, well, it's a survey. People can say anything they want in a survey. You know, there's it's called acquiescence bias. And it's like, well, no, because first off, people can say whatever they want in a survey, and you, the good surveys are, do you support or oppose? Do you agree or disagree? People can say whatever they want. So if you want to move away from that, um, this is a, an interesting statistic that a lot of people don't know. But when you look at all of the, what I call green initiatives on ballot, ballots and um, ballot initiatives and referenda, 75% of those green initiatives passed. So people put their money where their mouth is. Should money be spent on this? Do you support a constitutional amendment for your state's residents to hunt and fish? Set over, the, over the past years, 75% of those pass. Hey. 
So people aren't just saying, oh, yeah, I support it, whatever. No, there people support conservation issues. We just, for the Restoring America's Wildlife Act, you know, we found high levels of support for that last year nationally. And in this study, we found high levels of support too. People do put their money where their mouth is. So, so people care. On the other hand, there's low knowledge levels about wildlife. I mean, right. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania has had elk since 19. Yeah, that was one of the most amazing parts Something of like the survey. 63% of, of, of residents didn't know it was there. So, I mean, they're iconic. They're amazing. I live in Virginia. I was just somewhere. I don't remember where I was. And people are like, you have elk in Virginia? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there's low knowledge levels about a lot of issues. So, Mark, do you think that that, lo- that was one of the key things that I took from what your, your email was? I was like, whoa, they have no idea. And I hate to be simplistic about it, but it was like, whoa, they have no idea. Do we think that that is pervasive? I know you haven't done the studies, and I know I'm pushing you here <laughs> because you're the kind of guy that's like, I'm not going to say anything, Robbie, until I have the data and I've done the survey. Is it pervasive? Do you think it's that pervasive across the country? Or is it mainly pervasive in states that are probably more urban than rural? Yeah, um, you'll love my answer. It depends. Oh, it depends come on. on who, come who on, they Mark. Are Stop the academic. What it they depends. Do. But um, it does. It depends. Even if even in Pennsylvania, we found different regional differences and variations in who knows and who doesn't. But but yes, I can I can absolutely say that while people care deeply, they have voted with their pocketbooks on conservation. That there are low levels of knowledge out there, and that's and that is also sometimes the heart at the heart, not always at the heart of anti-hunting attitudes. There's some people who are against hunting. Because of moral issues, and I get it, and I respect that. I don't. I, that's that, that's their, that's how they feel. But there's other people who are against hunting because they think that hunting depletes wildlife population. Well, we know it doesn't. There are people out there that think legal regulated hunting has caused species to decline or become extinct. Well, of course it hasn't. Of course, market hunting 100 years ago did. That's all we're talking about today. So there are definitely low knowledge levels. I mean, a lot of people don't know the difference between a mallard and a pintail or a widgeon and, you know, a, a wood duck. So, yeah, there are some, and, and, and we shouldn't, and I don't, and, and, and that's okay. I mean, you know, I wanted to do conservation since I was eight years old. I was studying scientific names. I still have the terrible thing of forgetting people's names, but remembering scientific names of animals. You know, some people are oriented toward wildlife and some people aren't. But it doesn't, it, it, but, it, but I don't think it's fair to take away from that. So what if they don't know the difference between a, a, a wood duck and a pintail or a widgeon? Does, is that, does that take away from how deeply they might care? So anyway, so, so there are low knowledge levels. Um, one of the things that we see consistently that could be fun to talk about if we had time was people's attitudes toward agencies themselves and the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And again, this is where a lot of people didn't know who they were. Yeah. But a lot of people really know and feel that they're doing a good job. In fact, when you run cross tabulations, I was able to come back and tell them, the more people know about you, the more they like you. And that's kind of cool because you wouldn't want the opposite. And we kind of know people like that. The more you know about them, you don't really like them. The more people know about Pennsylvania Game Commission, the more positive those attitudes became. So I thought that was really interesting. And, and we can. there's a lot to talk about there. 
Um, one of the things that I thought was the other thing that I thought was interesting, this was a trends study, Robbie. We've done the study four or five times in the past. Yeah. So we, we, have, we have stuff from 2003. The, the most interesting thing, and I think it's because we do this in such a scientific way, is that, that, that values and these attitudes were pretty stable. Like when we talk about changes, we're talking about two or three percent. Oh, you know, hunting, um, support for hunting, uh, decline, decline statistically. Well, yeah, it was by two percent, you know, and we can talk about why that might be the case, but it's not like 10, 20 percent. We're talking a couple percentage points. So that's what we've, that's what the study found in Pennsylvania, that there There's was a decline in, but it went from like 70 to 68 percent, I think, if I remember exactly. correctly, right? Yeah, it was higher than that. I think it was 80, it, it was in the 80s. It was, okay. It, well, it was for it was eighty. There, we measured overall support and then different species and stuff. But again, you're you're talking a couple of percentage points. We can talk about that because we've done some well, other. Well, studies. why why do you think that? Because you know, if if we were being true scientists here, if it was statistically different, then there was a statistical change, and it yep. was something that went down. But what what would you point to from a reason perspective that you saw that decrease? Yeah. Um, do we have another hour? So no, no, you've got another 10 minutes or so. You've got 10 minutes. <laughs> um, we have done about seven or eight studies within the past 15 months on attitudes toward hunting. I've seen it on a national level. We just did a study on a national level with a group called Outdoor Stewards, um, a friend of mine named Jim Kirkrudo. Oh, Kirkrudo is an amazing guy. Yeah. So we worked with him. We did the, he helped us on that. We did the research. Um, we saw a decline nationally and regionally. I've done surveys in Northeast states, Southeast states, Midwestern states, and Western states that also showed a decline. So something went on. Again, we're talking a few percentage points. We're talking three or four, but I'm seeing it consistently. So um, there's, so, well, so there's several reasons. One, I think that, I think America's, Mark Duda said America is becoming more divided. He is a genius. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I think in the past, people used to say, oh, he hunts. That's fine. And whatever. You know, I, you know, this guy is a vegetarian because he wants to be healthy. That's fine. Whatever. Now people aren't giving people that live and let live attitude as yeah, much as much they gray used to. Lift. Um, there are some other things, I think, that are going on. I think the other thing is that one of the interesting things we saw in that is that people were more supportive of bow and arrow hunting, bow hunting, than rifle hunting. So I think the hunting thing is becoming obviously more and more tied to guns. And there's a segment, again, we're talking a small segment. You know, we're talking, we're not 100% of Americans, we're talking 3, 4% who are now moving away from hunting because it's tied with guns. Um, I think the other thing is that we're not as good of communicators as we should be. There's a lot of people who are, we're starting in the past eight, 10 years. People get it that we need to do something. One of the biggest champions is a good friend of mine, Peter Churchborn, with the Hunters Leadership Forum. He's like, we got to do something. He's the one who sponsored the book, How to Talk About Hunting. Um, the National Wild Turkey Federation is doing some great things in terms of developing programs. Kirk Rito is trying to get it. We just want a grant. We're going to work with him next year. On, on answering this, and specifically, this is we're going to focus on why that's the case. Here's something interesting, though. The only state that I haven't seen a decline, that I've seen a, a small increase, is in Michigan. And if you know, Michigan has something called the Michigan Wildlife Council, 
when you buy a hunting license, a fishing license, there's a surcharge on that. That goes to the Michigan Wildlife Council, but then puts money into communications to increase oh, amazing. for hunting, shooting, fishing, and trapping. So what's there? So anyway, so that's, we got sort of sidetracked. You wanted to know what, you know, what some of the things were there. I think we talked about Canada geese. People are, people are losing a little bit of support for Canada geese. Why is that? <laughs> I don't, I don't think you need too a- Too much uh, poop? You know, <laughs> you know, you might not need to do a research project on that one, right? So, um, so yeah, um, um, we saw support, and this is where the Pennsylvania study I've gotten, I've gotten some love letters from some hunters on this one. Oh, nice. Um, on Let's the, hear it. On the reintroduction of the American Martin. And we found very strong support for support for the um, reintroduction of the American Martin. So um, there's some things there. One of the things that was interesting is that the Pennsylvania Game Commission also did a study, an independent study of ours, um, to look at that exact same thing. Um, Penn State, obviously, you know, one of the world's great universities did a study on the same thing. They came out with 90% of Pennsylvania residents supporting that. We came out with 80% of Pennsylvania residents supporting it. However, we asked a unsure don't know. And when you t if you take out that unsure don't know, our answer, our response matched theirs almost exactly. So now I understand, I understand the issues. Um, it's the one survey question where I'm, again, I'm getting some love letters, you know, you're stupid, you're this, you're ugly, you're whatever, you know? And it's like, I, I get it. I, you know, I like to joke that this is the first time somebody has shot the messenger. I, I do work where I do scientific work and I show what's out there. And again, as we started this conversation, conservation is people habitat and the species itself. And this is one part for the commission to look at and understand what's going on. So, um, so yeah. So what's interesting though, is they, people were, would say you know, the few people, and, and again, the, the, the loudest people don't always reflect what's out there. I mean, we, you know, I know that I get, I've, you know, gotten punched before on, you know, Oh, you're stupid. You found this. What's like, I don't, I, I do science. I'm, I'm not a policymaker. I, <laughs> you know, it's a very different role. And you don't mix the two. Um, one of my graduate school professors one time said, um, science seeks questions, policy demands answers. I'm a mm -hmm. scientist. I'm not a, I, I mean, I, someday I'd love to be a policy. I don't do it. I'll mix the two. Mm -hmm. But um, the, one of the things that we heard on that was, oh, well, you didn't talk to any hunters. Well, no, we did. And actually, we, we, we see that both surveys and the, their own internal surveys have shown that hunters, the majority of hunters support Again, I'm not advocating for one thing or another. I am defending my research that that's what's out there. And, you know, my, my reaction sometimes is if you talk to somebody and, and they're rational about it, you know, the people can call me an idiot or whatever. Um, and it, again, it's uh, what I say, it's like, you know, we, we, we interviewed 3,500 people for this study. You know, I may have gotten eight or 10 love letters from, from people who didn't like the results. Um, it also, it's always befuddling to me when hunters push back on the idea of essentially increasing biodiversity. Yeah, I, yeah, I, again, I did the survey research on that. And, you know, I, my reaction is if you don't like the results, do your own survey. And if you do them in a scientific, unbiased way, you're going to find the same thing. So, and I, but I get it. I get differences of opinion on things. 
And to me, that's not a bad thing. I mean, our entire society was based on healthy debate where we get together and we talk about these issues. These are the good things. These are the bad things and come to some really good outcomes based on all of that input. Um, plus, it's very self-serving. I, I like to, like to um, we're getting to the end here so I can be funny a little bit, but I, I like, there's, I, I joke with my wife sometimes, I like that there's differences of opinion because if everybody felt the same, I, I wouldn't have a job. That's right. right. That's so, right. No. But in reality, of course, there are different issues, but the loudest person doesn't always speak for the group and, and there's stuff there. So, um, so there was lots of good things, and I, I would love for people to take a look at that. And the other now, thing, so I where can say, people find more on the Pennsylvania study? Like, can someone go and look it up and see the it's results? Out, it should be out there. Yeah, it should be out there. And because um, we put that newsletter out, and maybe what they could do if they if they want to contact you, and you could send them that newsletter because all of the reports, my PowerPoint that I gave to the commission, there's a link in there. So all of that's out there. Awesome. But um, I think I would I think I would end this by saying, you know, what in with the Pennsylvania study, there's so much to talk about with the Pennsylvania study. What is the one complaint that so many people have of government in this day and age? Oh, government doesn't listen to people. They just they well, look what they just did. The Pennsylvania Commission Game Commission just hired us um, and others, Penn State and others, to better understand. And they do this with their hunters all the time to better understand what the general population thinks, what their hunters think. That's pretty darn commendable. <laughs> you know, think, I mean, you know, I, I wish the federal government give me a survey on some things, you know. And so, <laughs> so I really commend them for in the state agencies in whole because they've embraced so much about understanding people in the context of wildlife. So, so that's, it's a good thing. And there's differences of opinion, and that's not a bad thing. And Good policy is always based on on good debate, but debate based on facts, not just people making crap up. When people start looking at my data and start debating it, I feel like I've done my job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it, you know, it's good for the the, the commission and the Pennsylvania Game and Fish to ask the questions. That's one thing. There's another thing to act on the 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 responses to say, okay, we need to pivot and change to X or pivot and change to Y. Well, think how difficult that is being a public agency. We, 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 that's a tough job because what is the job of a governmental agency to be all things to all people, to please every single person, <laughs> to have a, you know, a daily limit of ducks or a record buck for every single hunter? Man, that's hard to do. I have the easy job. I get, I just I just provide the research. I I have the easy job. So again, I really commend the difficulty in that. You know, who makes those decisions? Those decisions are based on commissions and commissioners who work for free who are trying to do that public good. Thanks to, you know, the founder of Fish and Wildlife Management, which was Aldo Leopold, who recommended that whole idea of citizens working with this scientific organization to make the best decisions for the best of not only wildlife, but for people too. The hard Mark, job. Marcus, people want to find out more about you and your company and what you've done and what you've produced. Where's the best place for them to go? Probably, I would just Google my name. I would, I would, I, I write and stuff by my full name, Mark, 
M-A-R-K, Damien, my middle name, D-A-M-I-A-N, Duda, D-U-D-A, and all sorts of stuff will come up. We cool. did a cool project on women in hunting and shooting and poaching study. We, it's, it's fun. I love it. Awesome. Well, as I said, it's not going to be the last time that we, we have you on here. Uh, next time, I'll, I'll schedule us two hours, and uh, we'll, we'll, go that, we'll go the distance then. But uh, Mark, appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for putting you. a blazer and a collared shirt on for this. Next time I'll wear a hat and a camo, right? <laughs> yes, please. See ya. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.